Good evening. Why don't you guys greet somebody, and I'm going to make things a little awkward. Why don't you move closer? We're a family, right? I feel like we're kind of spread out. So, <laughs> yeah, James. Hey, James, once you hit record, you can move as close as you want. As you find your seats, if anyone needs a Bible, why don't you raise your hand? Feel free to beat the person next to you with it. Just kidding. Sorry, dumb joke. Uh, but we're in First Thessalonians chapter four. We're picking up our study in Thessalonians. It's an awesome letter to guess who? The Thessalonians. Uh, which was a city in Greece, um, is considered a co-capital of Greece, uh, even today, sort of like D.C. and New York. Um, it was a rich city. It was a port city. You may have heard there were youth riots a few years ago in the city. It's actually called Salonica now. Uh, but Greece right now is in a serious financial crisis. You know, they're about to default on debt. And I say, keep your eyes on Greece and see what happens there, because when China doesn't want our debt anymore, I think, you know, we can expect to see similar things um, go on there. You know, this is going to be a model, I think, for Economic collapse, but that's just my two cents. Um, ancient times, it was a very similar city. It was very large for the time, around 200,000 inhabitants, it says the Internet. Um, it was on the main Roman east-west interstate. Like I've said, I've been doing a lot of traveling on the interstate, as they call it, even though we call it highways over here, down 95 to go to Maryland. And, you know, just like you might see a city, you know, Boston, Philadelphia, you know, Delaware, and no one really goes to Delaware. Well, there's a few people in here who go to Delaware. I guess there's good fishing and stuff. But uh, in my day, it was like, Delaware? <laughs> Why would you go to Delaware? But these signs of the cities, and I picture being back in Roman times, and you're on the Roman highway, and there's a sign that says Thessalonica. It was a major city, a major city. It was also a major naval station for the empire. Again, just to review, it was a church started by Paul, Silvanus, or his name was Silas, um, and Timothy, Paul's protege. You know, last week we looked at enduring through hard times by prayer, maturing through faith. As we pray, our faith is increased and we're able to make it through. But also that faith brings comfort. That as we go through a trial and we put our faith in, the God, in God, he gives us comfort and in turn, as we get through, we're then enabled to comfort others when they go through similar things or even something completely different. You go, I'm going through something completely different than you, but God answered my prayers and it was crazy. And God got me through, and that can give us hope. So that's why, you know, I hope that we share, you know, what goes on in our lives with each other. That we don't just come here and say, hi, how are you, and put on, you know, our Wednesday night. Well, you guys are Wednesday night, so you're double dippers, so you're a little better. But not the Sunday, hey, how are you, plastic, I'm out of here, got to go catch football or play golf. But we actually have a real conversation from time to time. And I know we can't have conversations with everybody, but share what's going on in your life. Maybe you're in a place where you need faith, where you need encouragement. Share that with somebody you trust. You know, on the other side, if you've gone through something or God's bringing you through something or, you know, I was reading this morning and this stuck out. Let's share that with each other because it's encouraging. You know, uh, Ashley and I have gone out with some friends for dinner lately and it's always encouraging to hear what God's doing in their lives and, and uh, just, to, just to be fed that way. It's, you know, there's almost nothing better than that. But I think Paul has a real gift for giving messages. Obviously, God gifted him and had him write the New Testament. But I think Paul is a fan of the compliment sandwich, where he gives you a slice of compliment as a, on the end. Hey, how, you know, things are going great. God loves you. 
<laughs> and then he kind of brings in, you know, the good old corrective meat in the middle. Oh, yeah, you guys are doing this wrong and this wrong and this wrong. But he gives a, good, a nice old slice of compliment at the end. You know, God's got good plans for you. You know, you guys love Jesus and so on. And I think that Thessalonians had very little, I mean, uh, Corinthians had very little of the, the compliment bread on the ends. It was so full of, you know, corrective meat in the middle. But I think Thessalonians is kind of the opposite. It's got big old, like, you know, hero bread. Like, you know, when you go to a deli and the bread is huge, you know, big all that. And then a little, tiny little slice of corrective meat and then a big old slap of bread on the other side. But I think tonight we're in a bit of corrective meat. <laughs> so I think it's a, a, a good message. But um, to start off, a couple questions related to this kind of corrective meat. And in a sense, this correction is not like necessarily they're doing something wrong, but really like, hey, watch out. This is something to watch out for. Hey, make sure this is the path you're on. And the questions uh, I ask us are, how would you rate your personal purity? On a scale of 1 to 10, 1 being the worst and 10 being the best, how would you rate your personal purity? And I'm sure we all have different scales and we all base it on other people we know. But are your friends more or less purer than you? And you can probably tell that uh, I originally prepared this message for the youth group. But I think it's fitting. Do they influence you or you them? Question number two. How would you rate your love for other believers? How would you rate your love for other believers? And other believers, well, look around. How would you rate your love for the other people in this church or elsewhere? One to ten again. What about your friends and your family? You know, you're like, yeah, 10, 10, 10. And then you think of that one person, you're like, oh, it might be negative numbers. <laughs> and the last question doesn't really relate, or does it? Do you know what the rapture is, when it's supposed to happen, and does it even matter? Well, maybe we'll find out. I don't know. We'll see. But let's pray and we'll get into the word again. Father, um, it's so good that you've given us the Bible and that every word of it is true. And we can read through and learn facts and learn stories of people's lives that you've worked in. And, but God, that more than that, we can know you and we can know what your plan is for our lives. And God, we, you've given us a glimpse into the future even that we have confidence in what's going to come because every time you've done that, it's come true. And the Bible is proof of that with talking of your son coming and, and so many other things. So, Lord, we pray that, God, you'd instruct us and correct us and help us to digest uh, this meat tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1 says, Finally, then, brethren, we urge and exhort in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more, just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and how to please God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger of all such. As we also forewarned you and testified, for God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. And we see right away, chapter 4, 
we see there's another chapter, if your Bible's like mine, chapter 5 is even on the same page, and it goes on the next page. But Paul says, finally, brethren. Finally. I don't think he's done yet. I think this is the pastoral closing. In closing, first closing, second closing, third closing. You know, uh, there's some guys I listen to on the radio. Uh, it's like, they talk about being in closing, and they still have like another hour left. I'm like, woo, <laughs> I can't really get away with that. But he says, finally then, after what we've talked about, about faith and about the call of God and about encouraging each other and going through hard times, he says, finally, after all this stuff, let's get into it. There's something very important at the heart of this message, I think. He says, number one, how you ought to walk. In verse one, how you ought to walk, the end of it, and to please God. You know, there is a standard. When it comes to living the Christian life, there is a standard. And that standard is Jesus. And I haven't walked on water yet. You know, there's plenty of times I've tried on puddles. <laughs> Lord, can I do this? <laughs> nope. <laughs> Should have worn my boots. But really, that's the standard. He lived a perfect life. And the reason why he went to the cross is because we can't. And he wants to make a way for us to live that perfect life. But just because we can't live that perfect life doesn't mean that the gospel failed doesn't mean that there's not a way for us to walk holy and to live holy. We're to do that by the Spirit. But we also have the apostles. We see, obviously, the disciples made a lot of mistakes before the, Jesus died on the cross. We see them very kind of not understanding things. And then the Pentecost comes. The Holy Spirit fills them and empowers them to live the Christian life. And then we see them do great things. We see them all die for their faith. We see them start churches and do missionary work and bring people to the Lord by the Spirit. So that's an example for us to look at. When we want to know, well, how do you live the Christian life? Well, read the New Testament and see what these guys did. See what their lives are like. Not that you might say, well, Paul did this, so I'm going to go do that exactly. I'm going to go hop on a boat, you know, to and go to Joppa like Peter, you know. We don't need to be that literal about it, but I think we can take into, into mind that these guys are really our example. But that there is a standard, you know, and so many things in, in today – we want to get rid of the standards. Live however you want to live. Oh, you feel that way? You can live that way. Or you think this is right? Then live that way. There's no standard. Well, look at the mess that it's gotten everybody in. The world is a mess because we've taken away some sort of standard. You know, obviously in art, you know, there's going to, you know, people like to throw paint on canvas and sometimes they call that art and that's a standard. But to me, I think that having a standard brings about better things. Uh, I don't know who said it, but it says that um, form follows function. You know, and I think sometimes the things that are most beautiful to me as far as, like, creation and, um, you know, cars or something technological, it's like this thing has so much function, but it does it so beautifully. There's nothing on there. There's no extra chrome. There's no extra wing or extra piece on there that doesn't make any sense. It's all there for a purpose, and I think that that makes the beautiful, most beautiful thing. And I think that's the same thing in our lives as Christians, that God, just as he created creation, it's very beautiful, it all works. There's nothing really extra in creation. It all works together. But that there's a standard that we need to walk according to the way the Bible prescribes us to live, that we can't just say, oh, I don't like what that says, so I'm going to ignore it, you know? But number three, verse three says, for this is the will of God. This is the will of God. Again, we go, what is God's will? What is God's will for my life? Does he want me to go to college? Does he want me to do this, do that? And all those things, you know, probably play in some place, but the core of it is, this one thing, just like we saw to pray and rejoice always and uh, pray without ceasing, like you said, a couple uh, chapters back. But this is his will, your sanctification. Well, that's a big word. What does that mean? 
It means being made more like God, being made more holy, being sanctified, being set apart, being made into the image of God. And that doesn't necessarily happen overnight. Yes, we get saved. Yes, we're redeemed and we're going to heaven and God dwells in us. But probably there's still a lot of rough edges on our life. You know, just like maybe the first day you sign up to go to the gym. Yes, you're a member of the gym. You know, yes, you know, you've got on the gym shorts and the running shoes, but you haven't even gone running yet. You know, like me, like I shared Sunday, I went once so far. <laughs> I'm not really sanctified into a marathon runner yet. It may never be. But really, as a Christian, it's like just because we have the, the badge and we got the shorts and the shoes, we still got to go out there. We still got to run the race as believers. And Paul says that physical exercise profits little, but spiritual exercise is better. It's for godliness. And that's way better. So it's way better to be versed in the Bible and a Christian marathon runner than it is to be an actual marathon runner. But there is obviously some benefit to that. But really, the will of God are sanctification. And what does he say is the, really what he focuses on here is sexual immorality. And that's the biggest stumbling block to any of us for our sanctification, for being made more like God. The Bible says that if we want to see God, we're going to have to have a pure heart, that the pure in heart will see God. If your heart is impure, it's full of impure things, you're not going to see God for who he really is. You know, it's like you're going to have, um, the other day I was working on my car, changing the brakes, and I got like grease and sweat on my glasses, and I kept putting them on, they were kept on there, and I couldn't really see straight, and I was trying to get a bolt back in, so I had to take my glasses off and wipe them off and clean them. And then I could see. That's the same way. If our hearts are covered in grease and covered in sweat and dirt, and we're looking and we're trying to see where God is and what's God's will for my life, you're not going to see it. It's going to be, oh, maybe it's over here, and you're trying to put the bolt in, and it's not going in, and you know, you end up hurting your hand or something. I don't know. But really, if we're going to see what God's will is for our life, well, the key is we need to get the core things sorted out. And the way we get them sorted out is at the cross. But what he says here is that you should abstain from sexual immorality. He doesn't say, eh, you know, put a cap on it, limit it a little bit, you know, just avoid it a little bit, but indulge here and there. He says abstain, which is apparently a bad word in the public school system, abstinence. It means just get away from it. Like Joseph, when uh, Potiphar's wife went after him, he didn't hang out and say, hey, you know what, I'm just going to go in the kitchen. <laughs> he bolted. He left his coat there. He said, I am out of here. And honestly and truthfully, that's the only way to really deal with sexual morality. The only way to stop being tempted is to turn off the phone, turn off the computer, get out of the house, leave that date, you know, run away. That's the only way to deal with it. It's the only way to deal with it because the Bible says what? Can a man take fire into his lap and not get burned? You start hanging around the fire, get a little too close. Let me see how much I can pick up with this. You're going to get burned. And I've been on both sides of this coin where I've gotten burned and I've known better. And it's like, oh, what am I doing? But really, it's the biggest stumbling block. I mean, we know it. It's like if we, if we sin during the week or we sin earlier today, maybe, and of course we all did, but if we sin something that we know is just egregiously wrong and we come in and it's like, man, I've got to deal with this. I can't lift my hands, you know. And God's like, sure you can. Just bring that to me first, and then you can lift your hands. You're not going to care. You're going to know that you're clean. But sexual morality is the one that gets in the way the most. You know, sex outside of marriage doesn't involve private parts, clothes or unclothed. You know, that's the argument these days. Well, especially in Christian circles, outside of Christian circles, like, it doesn't matter. I want to do whatever we want. But it's like, well, can we do this and it's still not sex? I have to ask. If you have to ask, <laughs> eh, would you, you know, do that with your sibling or your parent? No? Okay. <laughs> you know, that's better. Mia is never going outside. But really, pornography, people, oh, it doesn't hurt anybody. Yes, it does. It hurts you. The people caught up in it. 
the person that you're going to marry one day and those, unex- those unrealistic expectations that you may think you don't have, but you really have because you've saturated your heart with it? Or suggest- suggestive dress and conduct? Why don't guys ever like me for who I am? Well, do you ever show them who you are or you just show them everything else? Guys, too. <laughs> goes both ways. 1 Corinthians six fifteen through 20 says, Do you not know, and again, this is the Corinthians, so he's a little bit harsher on him, I think, but he says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Do I go to a prostitute then? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. I like this says bought at a price. Because what do you do with a harlot? You buy her at a price. And God's saying here, that sex is deeper than just the physical act. There's obviously consequences to physical act. Pregnancy, which is a good one, if you're married. But then there's also STDs. If you're not married, you're probably going to catch one. I mean, the rates are so ridiculously high. I thank the Lord. I remember being single for years before I got married and wondering, am I ever going to get some sort of symptom? And praying, God, please, please, don't let that be. But it's more than your body. It's your mind. It's your heart. And even deeper than that, which is something the world will never understand because the man of the flesh can't understand the things of God, is that your spirit gets joined together. That, you know, you're going to have memories for your life you might have to fight off of people you used to be with. Your heart, when you break up with that person, is going to be torn in two because your hearts came together unlike any other thing. And even in relationships with guys and girls, I encourage you, be careful what you're doing even if it's not a dating relationship. You know, it's like you begin to talk to somebody else. You may not even have an attraction to them physically, but you begin to talk to them, and you're, oh, we think a lot about the same things. We both think the sky's blue. Oh, that's fantastic. You know, or we both think this, and we both like the same music, and oh, this is cool. And then you start sharing your hearts. Oh, well, I got really hurt by this person, or I really like, you know, going on sea, and when I get older, I want to own a boat. And, you know, you start sharing all these crazy, silly, hard things. And your hearts begin to match up. And then you go, oh, well, you know, maybe they are kind of attractive. And then you begin to hang out a little bit more. And you begin to maybe hold hands or get close and kiss. And eventually, you're totally together. Why? I mean, God says that the Bible says that men and women, men and women, the reason why marriage was created is because there's men and women. It's that simple. They like each other. A lot. God says, okay, you like each other, get married. (laughs) That's it. (laughs) So if we try and play around and do the things that married couples are supposed to do outside of marriage, well, then we get hurt. And we get to miss out on what God has the best for us. Not that God can't forgive that. Not that God can't correct that. But really, that, wow. We've gone the wrong way. 
And I think that's why it's important that we wait for God to say, this is the one to be with, because we can still make plenty of mistakes, even when we know that that person's the right person for us. You know, I knew, I, I didn't date Ashley until I knew she was the one God had for me, but after that, I made plenty of dumb mistakes, because I'm dumb, and I'm foolish, and yeah, she's pretty. <laughs> but really, sincerely, if I didn't know she was it, how much grief it would cause to have to end that relationship. And thankfully, we didn't have to end the relationship. We're married, and we have great kids now. We have a future together, and God's got a plan for our lives, just as he does you guys. And if you're married now, guess what? That's the person you're supposed to be married to. There's no going back. You're married. That's it. I'm sorry. <laughs> but really, imagine, you know, it's like God has a plan for us. We're supposed to come together spiritually first. Oh, we both love Jesus, and we both like the same spiritual things. And then oh, we kind of like the same things together. And then, oh, we are kind of physically attractive. And then you come together in the right order. God puts it together in the right way. And he can take it apart and put it back together. Don't get me wrong. But really, if we go backwards, oh, they're really attractive. And then we sleep with them. And the next day we wake up and we see they're worshiping Buddha. Oh, boy. What have I done? And you begin to go, well, they're okay. And I can live this life. And God says, no. You know, you begin to have smeared glasses and your ideas of God in the Bible get, get distorted. And like I mentioned recently, you know, when it gets to heresy and you get the false teachers, you keep looking, and I guarantee you're going to find some sort of sexual perversion, whether it's in their doctrine or whether it's in their personal life, because so quickly it'll twist the Scripture, very quickly, very quickly. But he says that, you know, if the Spirit of God is in us, we want to be joined to the Spirit of God. We don't want to be joined to someone that's not in the Spirit of God. And this isn't a marriage message, but... Genesis 2, 21 through 25 says, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. That's how literal the Bible is. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman. Yeah, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Imagine if you go on a date with a guy, and that's what he says. This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. You shall be called woman. Run. <laughs> I guess, you know, Adam, just like all guys, had pretty bad pickup lines, right? Therefore, a man... It's, it's true, and it's good stuff. Just joking. But therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Sorry, guys, that's one of the best parts about marriage is not being ashamed with this other person mentally, emotionally, Physically, he's being saying, hey, I'm open, I'm here, and I don't have to be ashamed. I don't have to be ashamed, because I know you love me, and I know you're the one God has for me. And that's important. That's important, you know, that we have the one that God has for us. If you're married, that's the, that's the one sitting next to you, believer or not. But if you're not, wait, make sure you know, because it's the second most important decision you're going to make in life. Number one, to follow Jesus. And that's going to affect your entire life for a good. Number two, is who you're going to marry because you're going to be with them for the rest of your life. And even if you divorce them, there's still consequences, at least in your heart, for the rest of your life. Let alone if you have kids or belongings and you know you have to like split the Irish terrier in two. I don't know. But really, you know, just to touch back on that before about Solomon, you know, Solomon's heart went wacky because he had all those wives. I mean, yeah, well, he had many. That was his first problem. But really, like, man, your, your spouse is going to change your spiritual direction. You know, I've heard it said that your spouse will either be with you in ministry 
or they will be your ministry. It's like when you get married, you can't just say, forget you, I'm going to go serve God. God says, you've got to serve them too. Serving them is serving me. So if you've married someone and they don't want to go the same direction as you, well, your plan for, God's plan for your life is going to be a little different. You know, you're going to have to minister to them. And you should anyway, but really what I'm saying is like, you know, you're going to have a trophy wife or a trophy husband and you're always going to have to polish them and make them happy and do whatever they want and you're not going to be able to go and serve God. You're going to be polishing them 24-7. And while we do need to take care of our spouses, we do need to be with them on spiritual things, but it's so much better if you're both just looking at the Lord and say, we both want to be crazy for God and you both can go in the same way and you can polish each other as you go, you know? You don't have to stay back at the trophy case. But really, when you're married, you can pursue sex. That's a safe place for it. As I said to the kids, you want to do it? Get married. It's that simple. You know, even the Bible says, hey, if you guys can't contain yourselves, just get married. You know, don't worry about it. Just get married. If you guys can't flee, don't want to flee, you want to flee together, go get married. You know, and the world is very opposite. The world is all about sexual morality. In fact, they use it to sell. It's like you can't even watch a show anymore, really, without there being immense sexual immorality and stuff that they try and get in there and make you go, oh, that's kind of gross, but I'm going to keep watching because the show's good. Is it good? But I like what he says here, verse 6. That no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. That really, it's taking advantage of one another because if it's not God-ordained, you're stealing it. Because if it's not the person that you're supposed to be with, and I don't want to get into too, like, God's will and there's only one perfect person for you, you know, but maybe there is and maybe there isn't. But if they're not the person that God has intended you to marry, well, who are they supposed to marry? And who are you supposed to marry? And then let's say you guys break up. You realize this isn't the right person and we've done X, Y, Z and then you get married. Well, what's special left for that spouse? And not that God can't restore those things. You know, I was crazy before I knew the Lord. And I'm thankful that God can restore that and give purity to my wife in some sense because I'm washed by the blood. But imagine if I had dated all these different people while I was a believer. How much special stuff would be left for my wife? Not much, because there's not much special to begin with with me. But really, it's taking advantage of one another. It's lust. It's saying, you look good. I'm going to take advantage of you. I'm going to tell you whatever I have to to get whatever I want to get out of you. And that's lust. That's not love. It's your gain at someone else's expense. And you think you're really gaining. The kids down partying in Florida, having these wild parties and orgies and all these things that are just deceitful and wicked and really it's corrupting them and hurting them. It's destroying them. They think they're having a great time, but it's destroying their mind. It's destroying their heart, their soul, and their bodies and their future. And that's the thing with sexual perversion. With any perversion, really. It gets worse and worse. What used to kind of get you going, well... You've become desensitized, and now you need something a little weirder. And a little weirder, and a little weirder, and a little weirder. And then you end up on the news or in the White House. Sorry. <laughs> i got to cut these political jokes, so I'm going to Maryland. I'm going to be arrested. But come visit me. Send me a care package. Yeah, a file, yeah. <laughs> That's on tape. That wasn't, uh, wasn't Jeff and Angel a little bit. But really, it gets worse and worse. and requires more and more. You know, just like the Proverbs talks about, it's like, you know, 
just needs more and more, and you're never satisfied, and more and more. I need one spouse. I need two wives. I need 700 wives and 300 concubines. Solomon! <laughs> Stop! Dude, I don't know how you have time for anything else. He built all this other stuff. But verse 7 says, For God, all that, it's out of the way now, but for God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. The calling of God is obviously holiness, to be set apart. God would never call you to be sexually uh, impure or be impure in any anyway. God's never going to say, go sin. It's good for you. It makes no sense. So especially with sexual morality, because sex is something a picture of something much greater. Just like a husband and wife are a picture of God and the church coming together and being one and God's unity with man, sex has a part of that. It's about the intimacy. When you worship, I test you, if you're single and you're struggling, worship. Give your heart to God, and it'll make that struggle a lot easier. Same thing in marriage. If you're going through a struggle in your marriage, worship. Give your heart to God, because there's some connection there that is very similar to the sexual connection. I, I'm not perverted and you know do anything weird, but really, God's designed these things, and he always makes these things on earth that have a picture of what's in heaven. But if God's called us to be holy, to be set apart, we really need nothing to do with what the world says to do, to be set apart. I mean, there's all this pressure to do these worldly things, and if you don't, you're set apart in a bad way. Oh, like, there's TV shows, you know, like 19 Kids and Counting. These kids, they don't date. They court. Their parents are there, but guess what? They don't have broken hearts. You know, they don't have, you know, children out of wedlock. They don't have diseases. They don't... Yeah, maybe they didn't like it for a while, but I guarantee 20 years down the line, they're going to go, wow, thank you. They probably even say it now. And the world kind of looks on like, isn't that funny? Isn't that strange? It is. It's holy. You know, the world rejects it. The world rejects abstinence and pushes things like condoms, which don't work. I remember listening to uh, internet radio when I was back working at the design agency, and there would be these ads that would come on like, use condoms, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And and talking about AIDS and all these other things, I'm like, well, it doesn't work. From the CDC, quote, latex condoms, the most common type, help prevent pregnancy, HIV, and other STDs. Okay. Well, I mean, in a scientific way, that's interesting. As do newer, blah, blah, blah. But look at this. Typical use failure rate. How much do you think it is? 18%. Would you drive your car if your brakes had a failure rate of 18%? Well, one out of five stoplights, I'm not going to be able to stop at. <laughs> Let's go. I can swerve. Don't worry about it. <laughs> no. If your boss paid you 80% of the time, would you keep working there? Well, maybe in this economy, you say, all right, I have to take a hit. But, <laughs> but really, they make it seem like it's totally safe. It's totally bogus. Because even then, if you've been there like I've been there, you go, I don't want this. And that's 100% effective. There's no such thing as being safe when it comes to those things outside of marriage. Believer or unbeliever, no such thing. It's like leaving your money on the street corner. You know, and I like how he says here, verse 8, Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit. He's saying that people are going to reject this. Unbelievers, of course, are going to reject this. You told me this before I knew Jesus. I'd say, yeah, you're crazy. I'm going to do what I want. 
I want to have fun. And now I look back and look where all that fun brought me to. Depression, horrible decisions, and looking back on, I wish I never did any of those things. I wish I believed God and obeyed him earlier. But that people are going to oppose it. And they're going to make it seem like it's your fault, you bigot, you closed-minded person. What, are you, what is this, the Victorian era? No. This was going on way before the Victorian era, guys. But they're not opposing you. They're not opposing me. They're opposing God. And I think that's the biggest thing. That's the biggest reason why Satan has made sexual immorality the biggest thing in our society. And we have really kind of done it too. It's because it opposes God so directly. Man and a woman, picture of Jesus and the church and their intimacy and the fruit and the children that that bears. And Satan says, I know it's good. Let's, let's bring that out of here and let's just corrupt it. Because if they're corrupted sexually, they're never going to see God for who he is and they're not going to want to see God for who he is because they're so addicted to this pleasure that's only meant to be in a safe zone. They're never going to turn back until it's too late. There's hope. But know that when they come against you, when they come against me, when even other believers go, oh, that's, that's bogus, it's because they don't have a problem with you. They really have a problem with what God says. And I guarantee if a Christian thinks that sexual morality is right, it's okay to live with your boyfriend or girlfriend and you're not married, well, get married. That's the solution to that. Or move out now. But really, it's probably not the only thing that they disagree with God about. You know, if, if we're sexually immoral, like I said, it's going to affect the rest of our lives. So the thing that we do in secret It'll be made known. You'll see it. You know, you can kind of tell sometimes you're around someone, you're like, eh, I don't know. I'm not saying it's always sexual immorality, but there's always something, you know, it tweaks us, it changes us. But, huh, we've gotten through that. Let's get through the rest of the chapter. Verse 9. But, concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And indeed you do so toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, that you increase more and more, that you also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing. I love that Paul writes here again. He has no need to write to them. They're getting it right. Just like we saw in earlier chapters, hey guys, you're doing a great job. You know, I don't really need to remind you, but I'm going to remind you. And that's sort of the way I feel as we go through this book, that these things are probably all things we know, probably all things that we even practice to a certain extent, but that it's good to be reminded of them. That Paul's not here saying, I'm teaching you something new, you guys are doing something wrong, I'm correcting you. He's saying, you guys know this, let me just build you up in the things you already know. You know, they're getting something right, and I think that's good to hear when someone, you know, it's very hard to receive criticism all the time, especially at work and a relationship, but when someone who we respect or we're close with comes along and says, hey, man, you're doing a great job, or that was awesome, or, you know, I really liked blah, blah, blah that you did, or, you know, whatever it is, that encouraging word, it's, it's just so much nicer to hear, and sometimes, ah, okay, I can get through that. I can get through that. Again, like, Ash and I watch a show called The Prophet, where this guy goes in, and he, like, invests in businesses and has to, like, change their process and, and all stuff. And it's really interesting. But he's very, he's very good. He, like, he encourages them all the stuff they're doing right, but on the wrong stuff, he's just honest with them. And I think that we need, to, we need that. But as a church, guys, I think we're doing stuff right. I think as I look out and I see you guys and I know most of you and the things that are going on in this body, we're doing stuff right. We're loving each other. We're caring for each other. We're praying for each other. We're hanging out. We're serving God. I think that it's good that we need to continue in that. that don't let anything 
get in the way of that, whether it's this body or some other body, but wherever you go in your life, God's proud of you. Even if you've been messing up, God's proud of you. Like here he says that, I don't need to teach you, I don't need to write to you barely, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. And I think that's awesome. Who better to teach us than God? And who better to have heard said about you that you're being taught by God? You know, it's like, oh, I went to Yale, I went to Harvard. Well, you were taught by God. It's even better. And if anyone's going to teach us how to love, it's God. You know, when, when God begins to knock on your heart to talk to that person next to you, or to step out in faith and share a word, or have a Bible study at your house, that's God teaching you. That's God saying, do this, go here. And that's awesome, because that too, just like the negative things, that too comes out and is obvious. When you begin to obey God, when God begins to teach you and you learn from God, other people notice. They may not know what it is. They may not tell you. You know, you may not get a T-shirt or a plaque at the end of the year. But your life will obviously be different, and you'll see, wow, that person is godly. And how are they godly? Not because they did some weird ritual, but because they're being taught by God. As I say that, we need to be sensitive to the Spirit of God. When God does begin to knock on your heart, hey, I know, I know the show's very popular, but gross. Don't watch it. But God, I'll fast forward. Just don't watch it. I've had to do that lately. Lord. But Tim. (laughs) Or things like other things. Whatever it is. Go share with that person. You know, put this money away. Save for that. Oh, go to work on time. Whatever it is he's telling you to do. Do it. But we need to be sensitive because 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says, do not quench the spirit. And Ephesians 4.30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You know, that we don't need to grieve God. That when God is speaking to us, we shouldn't just, you know, give him the proverbial hand. We should listen to what he, ha- what he has to say. And obey, because he's a gentleman. The more you resist him, he's still going to keep talking, but it's going to get fainter. And I know, God, that's cool. I know. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Do whatever this all right is. God. Yes, I know. We would save ourselves so much trouble if we didn't grieve God. And even then, just like I talked about the immorality, it's like our blinders are on and sometimes we get so far down the road, it's like we're 80 years old and our whole life is a wreck. Now we'll probably never have, not you guys, but you know, maybe you'll never have kids or maybe you'll never have you know, all these things that maybe God intended for you because you wasted your whole life. You know, doing these, these things that aren't godly. We don't want to grieve him because he's a gentleman. He's a gentleman. He's not going to force his will on you. God's not going to, God, make me do right. He's going to go, I want to make you do right. <laughs> I, want to, I want to help you do right. You know, Psalm 32, 8 says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. You know, it's what a great place to be in when we're following God. And we can tell what's the right way to go. We don't even necessarily need to hear a word from the Lord. We're just praying about something or we're doing our devotionals or we're just going through life and we just sense God's going, nope, or yep, or good job, or get away from that, you know? Just by the look. It's like you guys have been married or have close friends. You could probably know. You get that look. You know, maybe you're the one with the look. <laughs> you know, joking my wife and I is Jersey attitude. You know, she lived in Jersey. I lived in Jersey. I was born in Jersey. So we kind of have this joke, we have this Jersey attitude, like, <laughs> oh, there's a Jersey dude. But really, it's like, sometimes, like, we're, if we're doing something and we just kind of, you know, have to look, okay, it's time to go, or with the, the kids, it's like, all right, it's time to do this with the kids, 
time for bed. You know, that's the look. They didn't have a nap today. You know, whatever it is. But you can tell a lot from a look. What a great place to be in with the Lord when we can just, oh, that's his look. He can guide me with his eye. Oh, over there. Okay, Lord, cool. Oh, look, look what I found. This is awesome. Again, that's why we want to make sure that we bring our hearts to the Lord. That's pure. That way we're not, we can hear him easy. We can see what he wants us to see. So we're not, God, what's your will of my life? Oh, no, I'm on the edge of a cliff. What am I going to do? Oh, Lord. And God's like, I've been trying to tell you for months. Months. God, you didn't come through for me. You know, it's like, God will answer our prayers in those desperate times. Believe you me, I've been there plenty of times, even recently. But it's like, man, isn't it just easier if we, we don't have to get to the edge of the Grand Canyon? If we just kind of walk, oh, yeah, there's a big hole over there. <laughs> That's nice. This next verse, 11 and 12, I think is one of the, for me, it's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. I don't know, it's just always stuck with me, and I think it's very profound in a very practical way. We'll read it again. It says, uh, that you may also aspire to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your own hands as we commanded you, that you may walk properly toward those who are outside, and that you may lack nothing. I love it that it says, aspire to lead a quiet life. TV doesn't tell me that. TV says, aspire to be famous. You want to be like a rock star. Aspire to have the new Apple Watch at $17,000. And Beyonce has a new band that you can't get because she's special and you're not. Well, okay. <laughs> I didn't just spend that much money on a watch band. But really, that we aspire. A lot of people, we aspire to be famous. We aspire to be excellent in something. And, and these things maybe necessarily aren't bad in themselves. But God says what's more important, that we aspire as believers to lead a quiet life. And to me, that says leading a quiet life must be hard if you have aspired to do it. I think we all kind of think it's simple. If I'm just a bum and I don't do anything, my life's quiet, it's so boring here, there's nothing to do. Oh, I'm living a quiet life. I want a loud life in the city. Then you get there and then you end up hooked on drugs and whatever. But what really is that a quiet life is that it's a simple life. And I think our lives are very not simple. We've always got notifications going off, you know, easy to get addicted to the phone and email and text messages and, oh, I have to read the internet now. I just put it down and be in the quiet. You know, to be focused on God's will and not distracted. That's a quiet life. You know, you can leave a quiet life in New York City. You could leave, lead a quiet life in the military, I bet. You could leave a quiet life in the middle of Nebraska somewhere, and James probably knows somebody. But really, that's the quiet life. It's saying... I don't need anything fancy. You may have fancy stuff, but it's not ruling your life. I just want to have time with my family, with God, with my friends, serving him. And, and I don't need to have fame and fortune. I, you know, I can have as much fun on vacation to the middle of nowhere as I could somewhere else. In fact, more fun, you know. Ashley and I, I don't know what it is. We never want to really go to, like, the major theme park with our kids. We just, we kind of want to go to Grand Canyon or Yosemite. Just, let's just take that money and spend it elsewhere with stuff that's, more real. Not that there's anything wrong with going to those places, but really, for us, that's the quiet life. For me, the quiet life is coming home and having dinner and spending time with my kids before they go to bed. And For me, that's a quiet life. But I like what it says, working with your own hands. Honest labor. Honest labor. It doesn't mean that everyone in here needs to be a contractor or a garbage man or something with your own hands. No, I mean, look at my hands. They're soft. They're computer hands. You know, don't make these do actual labor. <laughs> They'll break. But really, it's honest labor. It's with what you do best. A friend and I were talking before about college and how so many people just go to college to make money and then they're doing something they hate for their whole lives. Like, why? 
Like, find what you like to do. If you have to go to college to learn how to do it, great, but do what you love. Yeah, I mean, I was telling him, it's like doing computers and stuff. Yeah, sometimes I don't want to do it. I really don't want to make this ad. And coming up with creative for this website, it's a real pain. But overall, I love it. Overall, it's a joy. It's like, yeah, it's not my favorite thing to do. I'd rather hang out with my family or be doing ministry somewhere. But as far as a vocation, it's like it doesn't get any better than this. I'm hanging out, being creative, doing computer stuff, learning, and being a nerd. But really, it's you know, if it's honest labor and it's what you like to do and you're doing with your hands, you don't have anything to worry about. IRS is going to come find me. Well, they might, but you you know, that you have honest labor in front of you. And I like what it says that you may walk properly to those who are on the outside. That when you have honest labor, when you work with your hands, you're going to be an honest businessman. You're probably not going to rip the people off because you're not in it for the money. You want to do the best job you have. It's like uh, a friend of mine found a mechanic from a friend and referred the mechanic to me. And it's like, this guy is so super honest and he just loves to do it. He has another job, but he does it on the side. And it's like, he always gives me the full breakdown. He's like, I try to get it as cheap as I could. And he gives me, I'm like, it's fine, bro. I trust you. Charge me more if you have to. You know, it's like. So I'd rather go to a guy that's honest in his labor and loves what he does and gives me the, you know, always takes care of me than I am somewhere else. But really, that we wouldn't lack anything. And I wonder, how, how much are we lacking because we're so busy not aspiring to lead a quiet life? We have to have the 20-inch ramps instead of the 17-inch ramps. We have to have 10 spoilers on our car. We have to have the brand new iPod. Not that there's anything wrong with getting these things. You work hard. You work for your money. That's a good thing. There's profit in these things. And, you know, and that's... Something that's come out of free society that's built on Christian values in a sense too. But something that God even says, work with your hands, make money, that's fine. It's okay to have nice things if you work for it. But really, if you're living for those things, I wonder, well, if we're aspiring to lead the famous life instead of the quiet life, maybe that's why we're in lack. And maybe it's not. You know, we're in a rough economy. Hard things happen, bad things happen. You know, so don't go around blaming yourself if you're in lack. But maybe really kind of question, do I need this in my life. Can I get by with a little bit less? I have to do that a lot just by the nature of budget. And it's not fun sometimes. And, you know, other times it's like, do I buy this toy or do I feed my kids? Well, maybe I can buy half. The th-. You know, it's like, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a struggle. But really, it's much better. And I think, too, that it's also that we may lack nothing, but that we could walk properly, that we won't be in major debt. We'll be able to bless others with what we have. You know, people have blessed me so much recently in all sorts of different ways. And it's like, I know it's because they're following the Lord. You know, you end up lacking nothing. And who can say that today? Can famous people say they're lacking nothing? They must be lacking something if their lives are on the front of tabloids. They're rich, but they're lacking. And we're going to close up in these last few verses. Finally, brethren, (laughs) verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. He says, I don't want you to be ignorant. And that word ignorant is where we get the word agnostic. But I think it can also mean, I don't think it does also mean, um, it's to not understand, but also to err or sin through a mistake or to be wrong. Simply, you know, you ever think you know an answer to something? And then your friend or your spouse is like, no, that's not right. You go, yes, it is. And you get in an argument. And then later on, you know, watching TV or reading or, you know, come across like, oh, yeah, I was right. Our anniversary is <laughs> that day. <laughs> that's not my argument. That's your argument. But Hosea 4.6 says, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. 
Because you have rejected knowledge, I also will reject you from being priests for me. Because you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. You know, the reason how believers are destroyed is because we just don't know things. We don't know what the Bible says. A lot of people go off to college, and they don't know really what the Bible says for themselves. And so some professors spout some lie, a very convincing lie, that enables them to be as immoral as they want to be. And because they don't know the truth, they go away. And the same thing in our lives. The enemy comes along and spouts us a lie, and we don't know what the truth is, so we get into being in trouble. And the same thing, you know, we can also be disqualified in ministry if we don't know what God has called us to be. But knowledge is important. And Christianity is not throwing intelligence out the window. A lot of people think you have to be dumb to be a Christian. Oh, you're, you believe God did that? You know, my mom was sharing about, she was sharing one of her doctors as she was going through cancer treatment. And he's like, you believe in God? And she goes, you don't? <laughs> yeah, that's my mom, yeah. <laughs> um, but really, it's the opposite. It's the most intelligent answer. For me, I was always trying to find the truth. And God brought me the truth. And the more I dig at the Bible, the more sense it makes. But the more you dig at a movie or dig at the world or dig at a philosophy, you dig deep enough and you go, man, this doesn't make any sense at all. <laughs> I won't get into it for time, but really, you guys know what we're talking about. But he says, you know, those who have fallen asleep, the dead. You know, Jesus said people fell asleep, but they weren't dead. And this isn't what some people think of soul sleep. Oh, you die and your soul goes asleep in the ground and then it wakes up later on. You know, we have this idea that we can kind of understand what goes on outside of time. We can understand life and death because we're humans and we're super smart. But really, God's outside of time. And he says here, you know, that people fall asleep. And I think the point of that is, is that he's trying to show that God has as much power over death as you do waking someone up from sleep. That just as you can, maybe, well, maybe your teenage son is probably hard to wake up. <laughs> I had a friend who could sleep through everything. And, you know, you wake the person up and they can wake up. The same thing with God. If someone's dead, all God has to do is say, wake up. Lazarus, come forth, and they can wake up from the dead just as we could from the sleep. And to God, death is not more than sleep. He can, he can still reach you. You know, 2 Corinthians 5 eight says, We are confident, yes, well-pleased rather to be absent from the body than to be present with the Lord. It says that as soon as you die, you're in the presence of God. Well, how does that work if time hasn't ended yet? Does that mean your soul goes to sleep? No, it says you're right there with the Lord. My theory is time jump. We're in time. God's outside of time. What's the big deal to jump over? We won't get into it. But really, God's outside there. If God says it's there, we're there. We don't need to come up with some silly theory. But you know, death brings sorrow. But we can rejoice. You know, people die. If they don't die in the Lord, it's sad. But when they die and they know Jesus, it's like, I'm sad because I miss you, but you're hanging out in heaven right now. I'm not sorry for you. Why can't I die? <laughs> but we have hope, and that's resurrection. That we're coming back in heaven. Let's read on, and we'll close out here. Brethren, for this we say, verse 15, to you who are uh, by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. You know, it's the word of the Lord. It's our guarantee. God doesn't lie, and God doesn't change. You know, when God says something in the Bible, we can really be confident in it, because if God said it, and God is who he says he is, and we believe him for that, he's not going to change. 
You know, the dead in Christ, they rise, they fly, we meet in the air, like, you know. It's like, they die. It says that the dead in Christ rise first. So maybe they jump through time to the point of the rapture. They rise out of the ground. Hey, Uncle Bob! We go up and meet them in the air and meet Jesus. I love this word. Rapture is not in the Bible. I don't see rapture. Okay, well, the Greek word right here for caught up is harpazo. It means to seize, to carry off by force, to seize on, claim for oneself eagerly, or to snatch out or away. And the Latin word is rapture. But I love that, that that's the picture of the rapture. That's not this gentle, you know, harp, we're going to heaven, woohoo, meeting them there. It's God going, get out of the way of the bus. He's seizing us out way before the judgment happens. But I think it's cool that it says that we meet the Lord in the air. That's not necessarily like, God can't even wait for us to get to heaven. He's like, you're still in the air. <laughs> you know, maybe it's as high as Michael Jordan. I don't know how high or low it has to be, but God's going to meet us in the air. And I think that that's awesome because he can't wait for it to be with us. But also, what kind of an introduction is that? Whoa, hey, Lord, we're in the sky. This is awesome. Hey, you guys all died. Hey, Peter, Paul. You know, it's like this fantastic event. It's not, all right, standing in line. All right, Peter, can you handle more people at the gate? Come on. You know, it's like all at once. I can't wait to fly. And I I love that it says, and thus, we shall always be with the Lord. I hope I take the scenic route. I meet the Lord, and then I get to see all the galaxies. And then, you know what I mean? That's my weird desire. And when that happens, I'm going to say, no, I don't want to see the galaxies. (laughs) Not, Not a big deal anymore. But really, it's forever. It's over. We're with God. When that happens, when we die, and you're a Christian, you're with God. That's your guarantee. The Holy Spirit's your guarantee. If you're alive and he comes back, you're with God. That's it. There's no more time apart from God. And verse 18 for our final closing. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. These things that we talked about tonight in the scripture, we read about and we hopefully learned something, is that these things these should, excuse me, should comfort us. That we can be pure. We can live a life by the Spirit. We don't have to deal with the consequence of sin anymore. But on top of that, we can live a holy life. And as we live that holy life, we have the confidence that we don't have to worry about death. And that when the rapture comes, when Jesus comes, we're going to meet him in the air, and then it's forever. That those who died are in heaven, if they died in Jesus. And when we die, we'll be with them in Jesus in heaven. You know, I'm not going to read it for time, but check out Second Peter 3 later. Read it. It's related. And say to us, hold on. Hold on. Because he's coming. This world is not much longer, and we're going to be out of here. It's hard, yes. But pray, you know, I've been praying a lot in this past year or so. Just at the end of the, my prayer is just, Lord, come soon. And it's just been such a blessing. I encourage you, get in that habit. It's something that I feel like the Lord was kind of leading my family to do. And it's like, man, all of a sudden the problems don't seem to be as big anymore. Amen? Father, we thank you for your grace and your truth. And that, God, your word is truth. And that, God, you, you sanctify us. God, would you make us holy? Would you do the work that we can't do, which is everything? God, help us to love one another, to abstain from sexual morality, whatever that looks like and whatever the temptation is. And God, would you help us to live holy and to love others? And God, that we would bring others to you, that they would be confident that when they die, they can go to heaven. God, help us to comfort one another um, with all these things and especially with the stuff that we all go through. Let us be in a place where we can comfort others and be a comfort and receive comfort. But God, would you come soon, even tonight, even now, will we meet you in the air? And God, I pray that it's not more than... (laughs) two feet off the ground because I don't want to wait any longer than we have to. And I know you don't either. So thank you for that. Come soon, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.
So God bless you guys. 